Welcome back to Imago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Imago Day because equality and dignity of BIPOC and LGBTQ lives matter. This week, we're talking about superstition and the ways it shows up in our spirituality. How do we integrate our encounters with coincidence, bad energy, intuition, and those times when the hairs just stand up on the back of our necks with our rational minds? And do we even need to? Spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle is our co-host, along with yours truly, Kendra Arsnow. In this episode, we are continuing our redefined series, creating bigger boxes for a bigger God. Feliz Día de los Muertos. Gracias. <laughs> I just, I think it was an interesting episode last week. I really enjoyed talking about some spooky encounters and how we go about determining whether something is mental health and whether something is maybe something more. It was such a fascinating conversation. We didn't get to talk about some of your interventions. There's this woman that has done some studies on like where psychosis and spirituality live in the brain and what they look like. And that basically she makes the point that there is really little to differentiate those two spaces. Mm. It's interesting. We are living close to where something very historical has happened. The Salem witch trials. And I want to go to Salem pretty soon and go on one of those witch tours, which I think would be very interesting to learn the history of how this became such a crazed phenomenon. I had actually, through the seminary, an opportunity to do the Adventist Heritage Tour, Uh which one of our stops was in Salem. Salem, And they did talk about this. And some people were really, I'm among them at that time. Mm Mm-hmm. Scared to get off the bus. So not everybody got off at each stop. At that t- we're <laughs> skipping the Salem Witch. So yeah. you have a part of your journey that's unfinished. We've got to go finish it. <laughs> I know. I know. There was actually this guy who I have a lot of respect for. And when all these seminarians, all these pastors were getting off at these homes and these museums, rare. Yeah. There was just a lot of history. He kind of gave the whole bus a speech about how you can't enter the devil's playground and you just have to be really mindful. And if you're feeling spiritually weak now, maybe you shouldn't get off the bus. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) That is so messed up. (laughs) So people in Salem getting their lattes are looking at you guys. What is going on? Why is there such a struggle happening on this bus? Well, anyways, I stayed inside the bus. So that just gives you a little bit of an idea of where I was then. Wow, that's interesting. That's so interesting. So I was doing some history. For those of you who are not familiar with the story of the Salem Witch Trials, basically it started off, this is the 1600s. There are two kids that get sick and they have some things happening with them that people don't understand. And the people of the town go on this witch hunt and they bring to a trial which is such a kangaroo court trial. I mean, I'm so glad our laws in some ways have progressed. But they bring three women. And one woman was a beggar of the town. Another woman was an elderly woman. And another one, Tituba, was a slave woman. And people argue whether she was from West India or whether she was from a Native American. I think most of the majority of literature says that she's West Indian, African-American descent 
And in the trial, there is some questioning that happens. I actually want to read you just a tiny bit of the transcript. So it starts off where the constable of the town, Joseph Herrick, is interviewing Tituba. And he says, Tituba, what evil spirit have you familiarity with? She replies, none. Why have you hurt these children? She replies, I do not hurt them. Who is it then? She replies, the devil, for aught I know. He says, did you never see the devil? And then she says, the devil came to me and bid me to serve him. Who have you seen? Four women sometimes hurt the children. And it goes on to this transcript. And some people, and even Tituba at some point, recants this confession and says that she got beaten in order to give this confession. She was also a slave who really didn't have anything to gain by saying I didn't do it because those who denied the the accusations were actually the people who were killed. But she actually spent some time in jail after her confession because she was a a cooperative witness to the crime and then was, again, slowed off into slavery. And I just thought about just this phenomenon of how when something mysterious happens or the ways that we try to explain the unexplainable by really making a scapegoat of the most vulnerable in our population. Hmm. Here's the woman who's a beggar, the old woman, and the woman who's a slave. You, you don't get lower in a society than the woman who is a slave. And to just see how that was a way to cope with a lot of, there's a lot of socioeconomic tensions happening at the time. People were migrating actually from Quebec and down from Canada because there was a war happening. And so resources were spread thin and they found this woman to be a scapegoat. And I think it's interesting human nature. Mm. So I think what it brings up for me is things that I don't necessarily encounter here living in America versus living in Puerto Rico, Uh where there is this kind of force and power that's working within relationship. And I think I'm reminded of this illness caused by what is translated as an evil eye or mal de ojo. Mm. And I'll just read to you what it means. Evil eye is a folk illness primarily affecting children with infants being particularly vulnerable. This supernatural belief holds that the admiring look or a stare can weaken the child, leading to bad luck, sickness, and even death. That's interesting. So that, so basically somebody who is envying you is going to cause you to be sick. And that is where all these folk medicines come in, where it's okay, we got to pull out the sage and make sure that we remove the bad energy from people who might be envious of you. I think just in Hispanic culture, and Hispanic meaning communities that speak Spanish, I'm not referring to any ethnic group in particular, just these are kind of some generalizations for what you might find in Spanish-speaking communities. Mm-hmm. And this is from an article that I read published by the CDC on health communication. Some maintain that health results from good luck or is a reward for good behavior. Illnesses are thought to have either natural or supernatural causes. And among them, it's the mal de ojo that I mentioned. And there's also empacho, which is a form of upset stomach or indigestion thought to be caused by eating the wrong food at the wrong time of day, eating undercooked food or swallowing gum. 
And susto, fright sickness, arises from a traumatic or frightening experience and is thought to cause soul loss, whereby the soul leaves the body and wanders freely. It's interesting because I think as we're moving forward, even in Western medicine, there is an acknowledgement that you can make yourself sick by your thoughts. You can be so negative in your thinking and so toxic that you physically make yourself ill. And so, and, and not only that, I mean, you have books, the body keeps the score, the body speaks the mind. Yeah. That essentially talk about, and in spiritual care, they teach us this, that if you don't resolve issues in the psyche, they will inevitably show up in the body. And so the, the body speaks the mind is kind of this book navigating how different parts of your body might have a supernatural or a more psychological cause. Uh, so yeah. one of the things that, and not everybody believes in this, but one of the things that would happen is, oh, you tripped over a log and hurt your ankle. And so now you have this ache in your ankle. And somebody who is not maybe so in tuned with the spiritual world or the spiritual element might just be like, oh, that was random. Mm. But some people really attach meaning to those accents. I tripped and hurt my ankle because I forgot to kiss my grandmother goodbye or I was angry at my mom and or something like that. Exactly. So in that book, The Body Speaks the Mind, it's a, a broken ankle might imply a very deep conflict about the ground you are standing on and support for where you are going. So maybe injuring your ankle might point to a struggle you're facing in life. Are you feeling the ground beneath you is shaking? That's if somebody wanted to draw meaning. I think it's interesting. I, I get into a trigger where I think, oh, this is more superstition. I, I tripped for a variety of reasons. Maybe I wasn't paying attention to where I was going. Maybe I was distracted. Maybe my dog saw a squirrel and ran off in the other direction. So you discredit any parallel process that might be happening within your brain and psyche and your actual experience and movement in the world, that your body in some ways may be mirroring the struggles. I, I think maybe there are some illnesses that you cause. Maybe there is a way that you can be so negative in your thinking that you're making yourself sick or so anxious that you're giving yourself a stomach ache. I've, I've experienced that. I know that that can happen. But to think that I caused an accident to happen, those are things that I, I say, oh man, that's, it's bordering on the superstition a little bit for me. <laughs> because it, it just with the, the mal de ojo that you're talking about, mm -hmm. where it's like somebody else's jealousy is going to cause you harm, that it's an external force that's coming on and having an influence. Over. And I think these are real things that people believe. And I've also seen, I guess, the harm of that somebody, for example, 400 years ago, could be brought to trial because what you thought and did in your kitchen affected somebody three blocks away and made them sick. That's something that I go, oh, man. But I do believe that there are unexplainable What's the word? I believe you can feel someone's bad energy. If I walk by somebody and they always have a stinky eye and they are angry when they look at me and I just know that they're seething, I can say that that's a, that affects me. I can say, man, 
it's bad energy in here. And you can feel bad energy when you walk into a room and maybe people have been arguing and you walk in and you sense that everything is tense. Nobody needs to say anything, but it's somehow present. So there is that balance between, man, there's something that I am feeling that happened externally from me that I'm presently now observing and feeling and participating. But when's that line of where you move into the superstition where it's, okay, this person who's angry with me, their bad energy is causing all of my bad luck. And, and, and I think that's a great point. And it sounds, for example, in your life, you've drawn kind of these boundaries for what you will soak in, in terms of understanding energetic influence, understanding maybe that spiritual side. It's still physical in a lot of ways. Nonverbal language is still communicating something. So it's yeah. not, it's all imaginary and superstitious and metaphysical. There's, there's yeah. stuff that happens on an energetic and spiritual level that really is perceptible on the physical side of it. And I think what I want to point to is the range of belief system is, I mean, enormous. So I encounter people who have a more naturalist faith or a more yeah. humanist approach or faiths that do have a lot of superstition. Who am I to consider what is superstition? Yeah. And so when you come across that range, I think our own anxiety for wanting control over what we feel is acceptable or not acceptable mm. comes up. And I think what happened in this case that you're pointing out with the Salem trials and all that, yeah. it's there's a group of people that want to so protect their spiritual space that this is this is the the extension of that anxiety of the mysterious right. of interacting and drawing hard boundaries around what is allowed because maybe what is possible is far greater than I would get to be. Mm. And maybe I'm not so sure that these superstitions are just superstitions. Maybe, maybe there is a chance that yeah. something supernatural is happening and that this person has some contract. And I think when we get into that maybe scenario and our fears come up and our anxieties come up, we can also become very cruel people. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting when you talk about how you went to Salem and you didn't want to get off the bus because you were like, I don't know if I'm ready for spiritual warfare. I mean, one. also I'm a closeted gay person feeling right. <laughs> when somebody asked me if I feel confident or strong with the Lord. I, I mean, I love the Lord, but I feel so um, far away from mm. this image that people have created to be a good Christian lifestyle. I mean, any kind of internal struggle where yeah. I'm trying to fit into a box is only highlighting how Absolutely. distanced I feel rather than how close I feel. Absolutely. And it's just one of those things where I love that story because I think it even allows me to connect with those parts of myself that did operate a lot, a lot of superstition. People's first steps towards faith at some level begins with the question of, I wonder why that happened. Or, oh, that's such a coincidence. Or how come every time I look at the clock, it's 319? Or is there <laughs> something I need to know about March 19th? I think we get into those things where we're like, why is this happening? Why are these coincidences occurring? And I, somebody who, my first journey back into Christianity, I went to college and I spent a lot of time exploring, but also 
I had some my own spiritual awakenings. For me, I think that whole journey unlocked for me being in touch with more of a naturalistic side to God. And so I did begin doing things that were very, in some ways, superstitious. I had sage, I burnt at my house. I, I began to, and I think Adventism in some ways also encourages this, but I changed my diet. I got rid of all chocolate and coffee, and I was just eating super clean. I was made sure that my mental and my emotional inlets were also clean. I wasn't watching R-rated movies. I was making sure everything was PG. And, and I really thought that I could get to a level of cleansing to kind of take off any bands of negativity that would keep me from living my highest potential in some ways. And having done that for a long period of time and realizing I'm not any better off financially, I'm probably, I know health's not that great. <laughs> I, in that attempt to be so cleansed in some ways, I cut off certain parts of my community because they weren't walking in this lifestyle. And it, it was a pursuit of righteousness, but in a superstitious way that you feel you can't get sullied with people talking just things that are just regular everyday life. So I think that's some some of my own resistance of wanting to find the lines between where now I'm in a space where I'm really trying to remove superstition from my life, but also leave a great deal of room for things like intuition and things that like th- that the church historically has said, don't pay too much attention to this because this isn't a really good source of information. And instead, learning how to become in tune with that for myself. I'm somebody who's, who's always dreamed a lot. And sometimes I get these moments where something that happened in the dream happens that day. And I always kind of get freaked out by that because I wonder, I used to think if, if something that I'm dreaming happens the next day, who am I in tune with? I'm not in tune with God anymore. <laughs> I must be in tune with the devil because we've often associated the devil with fortune telling and psychic powers and all that stuff. And so I would get freaked out and say, I cannot be in tune with something that is of the devil. There's something going on in my life that I need to fix now because I'm dreaming in what I feel is a prophetic way. And not this is, I'm not talking about big things. I'm talking about dumb, random things that have no consequence to anything even remotely significant. But just the fact that I felt, wow, I'm in tune with something that feels like these things that I'm not supposed to be in tune with has also caused me to question, maybe this is not the devil. Maybe there is something about the momentum of humanity that is moving in a direction and that somewhere in my like unconscious brain, I caught the wave. And that wave is coming to shore And my dreams are a space where I'm maybe a little less guarded, that I'm just kind of tuned into a frequency that has nothing to do with is this good or bad. It just is. Gravity is. Gravity isn't of the devil or of God. It's just something that's a mechanism that's in motion. Yeah, what I think is super valuable about the experience you just shared is is more so pointing at that process when your beliefs are guiding your interpretation of life and experience. It's here you are trying to fit this dreaming 
prophetic scenario into your belief system. And because it doesn't quite fit your belief about what a prophet is, then it must inevitably mean this other negative thing. And then we're talking about how our experience and repetitive experiences of something kind of demystify our worst fears that are connected to our belief systems and force us to re-engage with the belief system in a way that allows for a sense of congruency. How can I believe in an all-powerful being God? How can I actually believe in evil forces and interpret this experience in a way that is integral to it? Invite more question and curiosity. Did you feel separated from God? What are all the indicators that make you feel either connected or in the presence of God? And was this just a way to squeeze into a box? Or were you actually feeling a separation, a distance from the divine? It's sometimes we do need more checks and balances than isolating and experiencing alone and right. attaching it to a belief. And I think what this journey of reconstruction has looked for me has been just how can I be, it's still hard to say, I'm just catching myself. How can I be gay and love God and and demystify a sense of separation from God because I am gay and I believe in God. And I think over time, seeing how God is very present in my life, how I have very meaningful encounters, how I've I felt the same experiences that I felt in the church of really feeling the Spirit is giving me peace, the fruits of the Spirit that are love, peace, hope, wisdom, are still within my grasp, and I'm still experiencing them. So how can I feel that God has departed from me? Yeah. And these are perfect examples, what we're exploring here, of when we face mystery, when we face unknowns, are we leading with our fears and trying to make sense of it through the box and the lens that formed our ideas about the world? Mm -hmm. Or are we weighing our ideas about the world, our belief system within the experiences that we have and inviting a sense of congruency where we're not just trying to fit our experience into a box? Yeah. It's so interesting. As you're talking, I remember this experience where I used to have a lot of nightmares. And I used to think that those nightmares again, were a sign that I'm just not in a good space with God. I need to be reading the Bible more. I need to be praying more. I need to be, this is my fault that I'm having these nightmares. And I remember somebody saying, giving some, a list of symptoms for PTSD. Mm-hmm. And one of them were nightmares. And I just, it allowed me to access something so much kinder about myself and my experience to be like, oh, Maybe I'm just experiencing PTSD. Maybe this isn't a battle for my soul that I'm losing <laughs> that kind of perpetuates all this fear. Yeah. And not and not to dismiss the fact that when you're scared, you certainly couldn't run to your God and find yeah. comfort. Nothing is more divisive in a loving order. There's nothing more harmful or nothing more antagonistic to a loving order than shame and guilt. Yeah. A really important point that we touched on last week that I want to continue touching upon is this idea in religious spaces that that the things that you're dealing with and battling with, whether it's depression or anxiety or just PTSD, as I was dealing with, and it has often placed 
church members in a position where they feel uncomfortable even talking about these types of experiences, or if they do, the answer is to have a prayer circle, but not to talk to a therapist, not to get medication if they need it, and to really make it about a moral failing rather than, and some people prefer instead of mental illness, mental injury, that people are reeling from the effects of things that have happened to them in this life, trauma, traumatic things. And so I think in some ways religion has been used in a way that for people who can't afford therapy or can't afford to go to the doctor, it's it's the next best thing to to really be able to have a belief system of a loving God who is going to protect you from evil. And so I think for those on the economic fringes, that is the only thing that they have accessible to them is a God they can pray to and and that's it. But if we want to move towards God and therapy, <laughs> maybe you can share some things with us about the ways that you approach somebody dealing with a mental crisis, but maybe thinking that they're under some type of demonic influence. Ah. Well, I did work in the acute psychiatry unit, which is, let's put it, at the height of somebody's crisis, mental crisis, illness or struggle. You don't, as a provider, have access to your whole toolbox. And that's really hard to come to terms with. Somebody who's in a stable place can benefit from psychosocial interventions and therapies, but... When somebody's in a very critical and dire situation, I remember a patient of mine who, I mean, on top of her struggles with chronic depression, she had other illnesses. And it was difficult to try to help her eat food. Hmm. And some of the providers were, well, why don't you do therapy so that you can help her to start eating more? And I was like, she is so malnourished at this point that therapy will not work. We will not get anywhere. She needs food in her system. And her body needs a few things before any psychosocial intervention is meaningful. So I, I think that's one thing that I come across. And in terms of what I do with patients is really adjust my own expectation of what's available to them. Mm. At the work of Isabel Clark, and she talks about the implicational mind, which we might relate to as the emotional mind. This is where the senses are, where the body arousal system is. And then the more reasonable mind, which is the propositional side. And this is where people have language and, and can verbalize what's happening. And your wise mind maybe where your spirituality might occur is kind of in between the propositional mind and the implicational mind, the mm. rational side and the emotional side. So I think there's actually a very good research to demonstrate that it's an integrative process, that it's not the heart with the exclusion of the mind, and it's not the mind without the exclusion of the heart. And we believe that to some extent. And the Seventh-day Adventist community, I was taught mind, body, and spirit. Mm. But for whatever reason, it was always ignore ignore your spirit, ignore your body, just your mind. Engage with this in your mind. Yeah. And I won't go through everything that Isabel Clark talks about, but I really love how she says, feelings are how we know anything about relationships. And relationships are, after all, pretty much the most important things in our lives. 
And my version of spirituality as an interfaith chaplain is very different than my version of it when I was studying to be a pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist community. Mm. So for me, the goal of spirituality is to establish connection with the sacred, with others, and within myself. Whereas before the goal of my spirituality was to convince everybody that I had the set of beliefs and that their salvation depended on them accepting it. Yeah, accepting them. Whereas now I feel salvation is a very accessible thing on an everyday occurrence. It's something that I can experience. Even within myself, I feel like we don't talk about what connection to self really looks like, what it means. I'm sure we all have versions of ourselves we aspired to be when we were younger. Or we have versions of ourselves that we, let's say you're a runner, and you take a lot of pride in identifying as a runner. And that's something that helps you feel you. Some people say, I'm a family man. And they take a lot of pride in, in seeing themselves as a family man. Or I'm the oldest daughter, I'm really responsible. And they take a lot of pride in feeling responsible. Mm. I think we don't think about how spirituality is such a big part of how we perceive ourselves and what we appreciate in ourselves and and feeling connected to that version of ourselves that we feel we truly are. That's so true. So anyways, I, I know I'm going a very roundabout way, but when I'm with patients in the acuity of their illness, of their mental illness, my goal isn't trying to reason with them. I know that I am operating in the implicational mind where the body where the senses and the body are what drives knowledge and understanding. And what's hopeful to me is that the implicational mind is also where we experience these feelings. So because relationships rely on the feeling side, you know, there's a lot of hope for establishing connection, which is my goal in my spiritual encounters is to help people connect yeah. I can model that connection. I can I can be a safe person. I can engage. So I, in terms of interventions, or what do I say to somebody in the acuity? If you want a very tangible way of, of visualizing what it is that I say, rather than interacting with the content of what somebody is saying, let's say they're they're saying they want to be the devil and they want to meet and they want to fight the evil and which happens. I know it sounds contradictory, but it happens. Rather than engage the content of what they're saying, I engage the feelings that they experience as they engage the content. Mm. So it sounds like you're really angry at the ways in which evil forces in your life have robbed you of the opportunity to be who you wanted to be. I'm engaging that sense of self. I'm reflecting back in emotion rather than the content of what they're saying. And I hesitate to share how I interact because it's not how I expect everybody to interact. I only give it as an example to show there's a way that you can have a meaningful interaction with somebody without really touching on the content of what they're saying and without giving up that sense of connection. On a human-to-human level, if I believed all the things that you believe I would be scared or I would be angry and I can connect on that level without bringing judgment. And I can also set aside my own expectations for what you should be believing or or, or coming into because I have compassion for the state that you are in. 
And that compassion is compelling me to, to say, well, I may not be able to use all the tools in my toolkit. And we may not be able to engage your wise mind because we would need some of that verbal language aspect to it to really give meaning to these experiences. But I can connect to your emotional experience, to your sensorial experience. I can engage with that and reflect it back. And by the end of the visit, I find that I had a wonderful conversation where we talked about really deep things without me having to engage some fantasy or some content that is just really a distraction. The world of spirituality is so vast, so broad, so deep, and sometimes so close to the world of psychosis. It's why we get so riled up at the talk of witches, why divergent faith practices can send people on angry witch hunts, out of which emerge the talk of excommunication and heretics among us. Spirituality lives at the core of what it means to make meaning out of our lives. And no two people can do that quite the same way. Between my dream life and intuitions, I still have a lot of the unexplainable to explore. Sometimes I have to set boundaries on my own superstitious thinking and measure how much of myself I'm willing to give to that unknown world of unexplainable knowings. But more importantly, it's not so much the content of these fantastical worlds and battles that we create in our own mind, the ways we are the protagonist or the villain. It's the connection we experience as human beings and emotions that drive us to find something bigger out there. That fear, that awe, that wonder, that love, is an experience we can all relate to as we try to envision a much kinder world for our own minds to live in. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Imago Gay as we explore our redefined series, Bigger Boxes for a Bigger God. I'm so grateful for all of you out there who continue to write in weekly. Some of you are going through some difficult transitions and my heart is with you. Uh, please, this is a time this month is Kinship Awareness Month. And for those of you who might be feeling isolated and ostracized from your communities of origin and your community of faith, this is Kinship Awareness Month. And there are communities of LGBTQ Christians, believers, non-believers, ex-believers that desire to create safe spaces for you all to have community. So be sure to sign up and become a member today at sdakinship.org. There is so much health and healing in affirming communities. You can also follow our sponsors for this week, Spectrum Magazine at spectrummagazine.org. And if you have a story that you'd like to share or you just want to hear me say hang in there, you can write to me on Instagram at Kendra R. Snow with next. You can also follow our co-host today, spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle at Roxanne Marie. And if you're enjoying this content, please be sure to rate this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend.